But where I want to start us this morning, got a, just a quick question for you. How many of you have ever participated in a Jewish Seder, a Seder meal? Wow, I, had, I didn't expect that. A lot of you have. Every year. Wow, do it at, at a home or in a, where do you go? Your in-laws. Okay. And I know some churches do it sometimes, or some, maybe you've done it as a special event. We did that here at Winterbury years and years ago. Um, I've only actually participated one time in a Seder uh, meal, and it was at a friend's house a few years back. And it was a great experience, right? It's, it's an elaborate meal where you kind of reenact what happened back in the day when, when the Lord rescued Israel out of Egypt. And it's got all these different uh, parts to it, right? You've got readings. Um, you've got special foods that are all symbolic of what the Israelites went through on that night when God freed them from Egypt. And you've got uh, glasses of wine that are all symbolic. And then you've got singing. All these different parts to this, this special night. And it's always with family, you know, in a home. And, and the sense is that God is present with us. And at the very end, there's also this, and he will return. And there's this, there's this hope that he's going to return. So there's, there's two key elements in that Seder meal. First is just remembering God is present with us in our suffering. And we've talked about that already a little bit here this morning. And Marie mentioned that. God is present with us. And God was with Israel in Egypt. He saw their plight. He was with them. He's present. But then there's also the hope that the same God who delivered them once will deliver them again as they wait for Messiah. And so those two points, which are part of that Seder, are also part of what we're going to look at this morning. Because the faith we have in Christ is the same thing. We have a God who joins us in our suffering and provides us hope in the future. So if you have suffering this morning, if you need hope, open up your Bibles to Mark chapter 14. We are in the Gospel of Mark. We've called this series, Jesus, More Than Enough. And this morning, I mean, he always is, but we're, we will see it this morning. He is more than enough for whatever we're going through. I've entitled this The Last Supper because we're going to look at that iconic, famous meal, probably the most famous meal in history, right? The Last Supper. Jesus, only a few more hours of freedom in his life as we enter into this particular section of Mark 14. Just a few more hours. And as we look at this meal, I want us to to focus in on its connections with the Seder and the, and the suffering and the hope that are offered in both because our lives are mixed with both, are they not? Bitter herbs and wine. That's what our lives are about and that's what's in this supper. And I think they have a word to us where we are this morning. So Mark 14, now just by way of uh, where we were last week, if you recall, last week we saw Jesus at a dinner in his honor outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethany, two miles away. In the middle of that dinner, this woman, Mary, just completely against all the cultural norms of the day, comes and pours a year's worth of perfume on him because of her incredible love for Jesus. But then Jesus redefines what she did and says, actually, it's not just an outpouring of love. It is to prepare me for my burial. And with that, we get the first step towards what's going to be this slow decline into his violent, horrific death underneath the judgment and wrath of God for us. That's the first step. The second step is that shortly after that meal, horrified at the seeming waste of money, Judas goes, one of his disciples, and makes a deal and agrees to betray Jesus for some money. 
And with that, the story continues, starting with verse 12 this morning. We are on page 711, if you're using the the Bibles under the chairs, 711, Mark 14, verse 12. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when it was customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go and make preparations for you to eat the Passover? So he sent two of his disciples, telling them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Say to the owner of the house he enters, the teacher asks, where's my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? He will show you a large room upstairs, furnished and ready. Make preparations for us there. We're going to look more, but for now, let's just stop there. Father, as we come before you, I just want to once again take the same posture Autumn encouraged us to take this morning, a posture of receiving. Lord, you are here fully present to us. You are here with a generous, overflowing heart. And to all who open their hearts and open their lives, you will pour forth life and grace and healing and all that we need. Lord, help us to be as attentive to you as you are to us. ears to hear what the Spirit is saying through the perfect, life-giving, living Word of God. Speak to us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. As I said earlier, Jesus is only a few hours away from being arrested. So we have to get in. I know it's hard because we're doing this over weeks, but we can't leave the drama of this moment. These are the last few hours of freedom that he has, and he knows it. So have that attitude as we enter into this. On the first day of the festival of leavened bread, customary to sacrifice the Passover lamb. Where should we go eat the Passover is their question. I talked about this last week. The Passover, the celebration of how God delivered Israel out of Egypt, and then the seven days of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. By, by Jesus' day, had become one big, long week, the most anticipated week of the year. Once again, as I said earlier, they, they remembered how God was true to his promise and, and, and rescued Israel out of Egypt. And the way he did it, as you recall was there were 10 plagues because Pharaoh would not let Israel go. So there were 10 plagues, one after the other. By the way, each of those plagues specifically addresses one of the gods of Egypt, showing that the God of Israel was the true God over all of them. That last plague, the 10th one, was the worst one. God would send the angel of death, and he would come over every home in Egypt, every single home, and he would take the firstborn out of there. Unless... Moses, God said to Moses, you Israelites, I want to show a distinction between my people and those who are not. My people, I'm asking you by faith to do this, to take a spotless lamb and then to sacrifice that lamb, take blood from that lamb, put it on the doorpost of your home in the mantle and that lamb, the blood of that lamb would then substitute for the life of the firstborn of that home. So that when the angel of death came to that home, The blood of that lamb satisfied him. He would not take a firstborn from that home. Does that make sense? 
the lamb was a substitute for the firstborn. In every other home where there was no lamb, the firstborn was taken. Death came to that home. But no death came to any home where a lamb had been substituted for the firstborn. That's called redemption. They redeemed the life of the firstborn by taking the life of a lamb, one life for another. Make sense? Hold on to that. It's crucially important you understand that point. Stay with that. That's the night that they're celebrating. The very first night, they'd have basically a Seder dinner. And they would reenact all of this. They would go back over these promises. And they would remember the redemption. And so this is the night we're talking about now. I'll just let you know right now, there is massive debate among scholars. Was it Wednesday night or Thursday night? Because John seems to say it's Wednesday night. The others seem to say it's Thursday night. I don't have time to go into all that, and frankly, I don't think it matters, so I'm not going to go into it. If you want to study that, the dates and all that, you can go study that. Mark is saying it's Passover night. We're going with that. It's Passover night. It makes sense. This is the day the sacrificial Passover lambs are sacrificed in Jerusalem. And so they say to Jesus, where should we go? Are we going to go celebrate the Passover? Now, you need to understand something. In Jesus' day... The Passover had to be celebrated within the walled city of Jerusalem. You couldn't do it out in your city. You had to come to Jerusalem. It was in the walls of Jerusalem. But remember, I said last week, Jerusalem normally was about 50,000 people. During Passover week, it was like 250,000 people. I don't know about you. Have you ever tried to book a last-minute hotel in a very busy city with a big thing going on in that city? So they're like, where are we going to have this Passover? Read it that way. I mean, it's the night of, and we still don't have a place to go. And Jesus says, don't worry. I've taken care of everything. He says, all right, two of you, go into Jerusalem, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Now, what is that all about? In that day, men did not carry waters of jar, jars of water. They carried leather wineskins. Women in that culture were the ones who went to fetch the water with their jars. Men didn't do that. It would, be, it would stand out like a sore thumb to see a man with a water jar. I think Jesus has prearranged this as a signal. So no conversation has to happen. I want you to remember something that we forget. Jesus is a wanted man. The stuff he's just did at the temple the day a few days before, he knows that he's a wanted man. But he also knows the timing has to be the father's, and it's not quite time for him to be taken yet. So he still has to work in sort of a, a stealth way. And as his disciples, so he only sends two of the disciples, not Jesus himself. And I've arranged a signal. When you see a guy with a water jar, very unusual, shouldn't happen normally. Something that you would set up, follow him. And he's going to take you to a house, and when you get there, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where's the room? In other words, where's the room that we set up ahead of time? And all he's got to say is the teacher. He doesn't have to say which teacher. There's lots of teachers, lots of rabbis. I like to suggest that all of this is prearranged. Now, when I first used to read it, I used to read it, oh, this is Jesus' supernatural knowledge. Like he knows these things. Like the triumphal entry, remember that? Go and there'll be a donkey and a guy, and it sounds like supernatural knowledge. And saying it's prearranged almost sounds like it kind of, you know, lessens it. I actually think it heightens it. Here's why. For Jesus to have prearranged these plans to be able to go in and have this dinner means that he is on board with the plan that the Father has placed that's going to lead to his crucifixion and suffering and pain. 
Not only is he saying, okay, Father, I'm not thrilled with this plan, but I will follow it. Not only say I'll follow it, he's actually now saying, I'll help execute it. I'll even, put, I'll even go and do whatever planning is necessary to move forward your plan for my eventual death. That's incredible to me. You know, I just got asked to go to this, this week, weekend-long men's thing. I won't go any further than that. We're by a friend. And I didn't want to go. I really don't want to go, to be honest with you. And so, but we made a deal. I won't tell you what the deal is, but the bottom line, the way it works out, I now have to go. All right? So this guy has a plan. I have to go, but I'm kind of going reluctantly. I'm, I'm not going to really help with the plans because I'm not into it, right? Well, Jesus is not only saying I'm willing to go. He's actually helping with the plans. And think about how the humility, because he loves his father, he obeys his plan, even when it means pain for him, because it means life for us. Are we willing to obey no matter the cost to us because it honors the Father and blesses others? Jesus is. So he says when you get there, it'll be all ready. Again, all ready. They've already talked about it. Everything, all the furniture, everything, make preparations for us there. So then the disciples leave. They go into the city. They find things just as Jesus had told them. Everything's all set. And there they prepared the Passover. Now, lots involved with that. They would be getting the foods, you know, the bitter herbs, the unleavened bread, all that. But the biggest thing they'd have to do to prepare, and this goes back to what I said earlier, keep holding on to that. They'd have to go sacrifice the Passover lamb. Along, and we try to get this in our brain, right? Thousands of other Jewish men in the temple with the priests, all these lambs being sacrificed. Slid open, blood poured out in the basins with priests holding them, blood taken, splattered against the altar. And we go, what? Well, it's like going to the grocery store for these guys. This is just part of their lives. It's nothing unusual. They do this every Passover. And when they would take that blood and splash it on the altar, for that family who brought that lamb, that family's sins have now been, been redeemed, have been paid for. There will be no death in that home tonight. The sins are paid for. And we understand that. But there's actually more going on than just the, than, than the, the covering of sin. And this is crucial to understand. Because when the blood was sprinkled, there were actually two things that happened. Forgiveness of sins, but there was something else that we rarely talk about. And it's found in Exodus 24. Take a look at this in regards to Moses. Moses then took the blood when God had made the covenant with Israel, sprinkled it on the people... How disgusting. You want me to sprinkle you with blood this morning? This is, say it with me, the blood of the covenant. Okay, just remember that. The blood, of, this is the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all of these words. What words? The, the agreement God was making, the covenant. A covenant is an agreement. It's a one-way agreement. It's saying, I'm making, a, I'm making a covenant with you. I will do this. Doesn't matter what you do, I will be faithful to it. A contract is, you do this, I do that, you break your part, I won't do my part. That's not a covenant. God made a covenant with Israel, I will be faithful to you regardless, you're my people. And, and the blood, and now Moses is saying this blood of the covenant on you is a way of sealing that covenant. The blood seals the covenant. I'm all in is what the blood says. So, so now every Passover, when a Jewish man, on behalf of his family, sacrifices that lamb and the priest takes it and puts it on the altar, two things are going on. Your family will not experience death. Your sins are forgiven, number one. Forgiveness of sins. Number two, 
you are now sealing it. You are saying you are indeed part of the covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the covenant with Yahweh God. You are reaffirming, you're reestablishing, you're renewing your wedding vows. Think of it that way. Both of those things going on. And that had to be renewed every single year because the blood of goats and animals can only do temporary. So with those two things done, they then would take the meat, prepare it for, for the meal, and then they would head over to wherever their family was in town, and they would begin to have the Passover. And that's what we read next. So then verse 17, when evening came, that's when the Passover meal, uh, Jews never ate at night. The only time they did was on the Passover. When evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12. See how, again, he's coming, he's coming into darkness. He's coming in, he doesn't want to be, uh, call any attention to himself just yet. The time isn't quite just yet. Some things have to happen as we're going to see in a moment because they were prophesied before he can be caught. So when evening came, Jesus arrived with the 12 and they come and we have the iconic Last Supper. Now we've all seen this painting, right? Leonardo da Vinci. When I was a kid, we had a print of that picture in, my, in our, our hallway. And as a kid, I can remember just sitting there staring at it. This is a really bad rendition. But if you look through the back windows, it's like, I remember as a kid always staring at this painting. And, and it's like beautiful countrysides and vineyards and daytime, you know. But wait a minute. It's evening. It's not day. Jesus wouldn't be in front of big windows. He's a wanted man. And they wouldn't all be on one side of the table, right? So this, this painting is actually not very accurate. So over the years, painters have tried to picture this iconic meal. Here's another one that's really old. goes back to the early church. And frankly, it's a mosaic. Actually, it's beautiful, but it looks more Greek than Jewish to me. And then here's a Dutch painter, you know, in the Reformation time. That definitely is not accurate, right? That looks more European than Jewish. <laughs> This might be more the idea, this next one. And again, we don't know. But I think this is more along the lines of what we should be picturing in our minds as we walk through the rest of this passage and, and, and enter into this meal. We're being invited to a table with Jesus and his disciples right now. And what Jesus has to say is so important. Please, please, please stay attentive. They would be at this low table sitting on the ground around and again it's kind of it's nighttime it's a secluded place it's a place of intimacy it's jesus and his family remember passover was celebrated with your family this is unusual it's not an actual family but it is jesus said who are my mother's brothers and sisters he's with his family the ones who are dearest to his heart the ones he loves the ones he spent three years doing everything with. He's entrusted his life and heart to them vulnerably. And now tonight he's going to make himself the most vulnerable he has in the entire three years. Verse 18, while they were reclining at the table eating, he said, truly I tell you, at this point it's been a good spirit around the table, I'm sure. One of you will betray me. Uh, talk about ruining a party, right? <laughs> I could just see the spoons just, you know, dropping in the bowls or whatever. You know what I mean? I mean, just like, what? Jesus has told them now several times in Mark, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. This is the first time he says, someone's going to, I'm going to die because someone 
is going to betray me into those wicked hands. And it's one of you. It's a pretty small room. It's not like this. Whoa. Now I want you to pay attention when it says they were reclining. Right? Where, well, how come I've lost the notes here? Oh, here I am. Yeah, they were reclining at the table, eating. Now, listen. When they would recline, they reclined on their left elbows. According to John's gospel, I think this is so, oh, so amazing. According to John's gospel, John is to Jesus' right. Because when he leans on his left elbow, he's right in Jesus' bosom. And it seems, reading John's gospel, that the person that Jesus has left is Judas. So when Jesus leans on his left elbow, where's his head? Right on, right on Judas's breast. Right over his heart. And it's in that reclining position is what it says, right? That Jesus says, one of you will betray me. One who is eating with me. And he says it like this with Judas's head right there. Knowing all along who it is. Imagine that moment. I always think about like, like the people who tried to kill Hitler. And if Hitler was in the room saying, one of you is going to betray me. And you could just see like the person over there. Uh-oh, does he know? Does he know? I wonder if Judas, I mean, if Jesus could almost hear his heart right behind his head beating. <gasps> but here's another amazing instance of Christ. You know how easy it would have been to Jesus to then say, and it's you. And then what would happen in that moment? See, we don't think about this. Extrapolate what Jesus could do, the humanity of Jesus. We know he's fully God, but he's fully man, you guys. And we're going to see it next week in the garden, excruciating passage. It'd be so easy for him to say, and it's you, Judas. And, it, and no one would even question it. They'd all pig pile on him, they'd put him in a headlock, and they'd take care of Judas, and they'd get out of that city. He could save his skin right here. But he doesn't. He's committed to obeying his father even when it causes pain in his life. Because he loves these disciples. And I believe he's even holding out hope for Judas. Judas, I'm right next to your heart. I'm right next to your heart. It's not too late, Judas. What love? What kind of love is this? I want to act this way, Lord. One who is eating with me. In that culture, to eat with someone was a way of saying, you're me and I'm yours. We are one and the same. Today, we'll, we have meals with all sorts of people. Not in the first century. It was, it was a token of acceptance. My life is yours, yours is mine. It was a deep, deep, intimate thing when you would eat in that culture. That's what he means by one who's eating with me. Someone who's close to me. And they were saddened. And then one by one, they said, well, well surely you don't mean me, Right? One by one, surely you don't mean me. And here's Judas's chance. Oh, Lord, forgive me. I repent. No, surely you don't mean me. What a sad moment. What a sad moment. And he says, it's one of the 12, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. I always thought that meant like a sign. It was a signal. Okay, watch for the one who dips in the bowl. That's not what it means. They all dipped in the bowl. It's once again, Jesus is expressing the depth of the pain of this betrayal. 
Because you dipped in the bowl with your family. You dipped in the bowl with the ones who are supposed to have your back. You dip in the bowl with the ones you can count on. And that's what he's saying. That's how painful this is. I share my bowl with this one. And actually, it rings of a prophecy from Psalm 41.9. Take a look at Psalm 41.9. Even my close friend, someone I trusted, who had shared my bread, shared my bread, has turned against me. Have you ever felt the sting of betrayal? Someone who said they were going to keep a secret and then they didn't. Someone you thought was on your side and all of a sudden they, they, they seem to put the, 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 you know, the knife in your back. What was that all about? Or an unfaithful spouse. Oh my goodness. What is worse than being betrayed by someone so close to you? Jesus isn't immune to this pain. He's a man of suffering. He knows our suffering. He comes and joins us in our suffering. The gods of all the other religions stay up there and judge us. Only in Christianity does our God come down and join us in our suffering. (sighs) Praise be to God. Praise be to God. And then he says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man, meaning him. It would be better for him if he had not been born. What a statement. Now, there are two beautiful things here. He says, faith and love. First of all, when he says the Son of Man will go, just as it's written about. In other words, he's saying, I'm Lord, Father, I'm committed to this. By faith, I trust that you're going to vindicate me out of that grave. I'm trusting in that. And I'm going, I'm going just as it's written. I'm following the prophecies. He knows the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the word of God. Jesus believes it. He's committed to the Father, regardless of the cost to him. It's about honoring the Father, not our comfort. Amen? It's hard to say amen to that, but it's true. But then the second one, woe to the man. I've always read this more like, woe to that man who betrays him. Should have never been born. And then I was swayed by the commentators who who the vast majority said, no, 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 that's not the heart of Jesus right now. The heart of Jesus is, woe, woe, woe. Come back, Judas. I love you. I wa- you know, Mark doesn't say this, but John says he washed all their feet. You know that story. He washed Judas's feet. Come back. What compassion. Even the worst among us, Jesus has compassion for. It doesn't matter how far you've gone in any sin, any sin. God's heart is wide open to you. And his grace will blow it away. He's more than enough. Look at his heart even for Judas in this last moment. Doesn't turn him in. And then the scripture says at some point in the meal, Judas ends up sneaking off into the dark. And off he goes. John's gospel actually says that later on when Jesus gives him the bread, that Satan entered into him. Now, there's something I want that the Greek that you don't see in the English. I got to point out here in verse 21. The son of, my version says, the Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son. Woe to that man who betrays the Son. It sounds like Judas is acting on his own, kind of like Lee Harvey Oswald or James Earl Ray, these, these, these single assassins. 
Woe to the man who betrays his son. But that's not what the Greek says, and some of your translations have it better. The Greek is, and it seems like a minor point, but it really isn't. Woe to that man through whom the Son of Man is betrayed. You see the difference? If it's just, woe to the one who betrays him, it's just like him working on his own. Just a crazy man on a bad day. But if it's woe to the one through whom the great plan of betrayal is accomplished. All of a sudden you see this is much bigger than just one individual making a decision. Judas is just a, a pawn, but here's the thing. It doesn't absolve Judas because he's a willing pawn in this thing. His heart has gone to money. And every single one of us in this room, before we eat the bread, I'm going to give you later this morning, needs to be thinking about this. Is my heart for or is it for money, sex, sports, whatever your idol is? Will you lay it down for him? Because he's given all for you. And he's calling you for everything. Judas took the bread. Well, at that point, we then move into the actual two important parts of the meal. Verse 20. It is, okay, one of the, oh no, I'm sorry. Verse 22. While they were eating in the middle of the meal, some later point, everything's gotten a lot darker since he made that statement about betrayal. Jesus then took the bread. And when he given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take it, this is my body. Once again, dead stop. What? What did he just say? This is my body? That's not what's typically said. This is where I need to step off now and go back to where I started, the Seder. Now, there's no evidence that the Seder as we pra you practice it, as we practice it today, is the same thing that Jesus and the disciples would have done in the first century. We know it began somewhere in the second or third century, and it kind of evolved over the centuries, although it's still fairly close to the same way it's done today. But there's good reason to think there's similarities. So I'm not going to go through the whole thing. I don't have time. But there's a couple connection points that I think are very, very important. The first one is when the Seder meal is begun, it's begun with this blessing over the bread. Take a look at this blessing and what it says. It begins, the head of the household will stand up and say, this is the bread of affliction which our fathers ate in the land of Egypt. Let everyone who hungers come and eat. Let everyone who is needy come and eat the Passover meal. So this bread signified the bread of affliction. In other words, I knew your suffering in Egypt. I, I know your suffering. And what Hebrew scholars said in the Midrash and the interpretations is that what this blessing was about is God is saying, I was present with you in your suffering. The bread is about the presence of God, even in the midst of our suffering. We can't tell he's there, and we wonder where he is. You know where he is? He's right there. Like, like footprints, that kind of corny old poem. But boy, it's true. He is right there. That's what this blessing was saying. I was with you in the suffering. That's what the bread signified. Then the meal would progress. During the meal, there'd be four cups of wine. Each cup uh, would be three, cup, three parts water, one part wine. And then each one had a symbolism based on the promises from Exodus. The promises God gave to the nation of Israel when he freed them out of Egypt. Here were the four promises. Take a look at these. And each cup stands for each one. Therefore, say to the Israelites, God said, I am the Lord. And promise one, I will bring you out. 
The first cup is the cup of deliverance. Out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Two, I will free you from being slaves to them. The second cup is the cup of freedom. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. The third cup is the cup of redemption. Remember what I said? How were the Israelites redeemed? In what way? The blood of a lamb. You've got a substitute. You need a substitute. Life for life. Blood of the lamb. That's the third cup. And then the fourth cup is the fourth promise. And I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. The promise of consummation or restoration into a bright relationship. The four promises, deliverance, freedom, redemption, restoration, consummation. Those four. Now, God did that for Israel in Egypt. He did that. But all it was was a preview. It's just a preview. I mean, these days, the previews are so long, you feel like you saw the whole movie, right? It's just a preview. And the way you know that is the very last blessing at the end of the Seder. Here's the blessing at the very end of the Seder after the fourth cup. Take a look at this. May the all-merciful one make us, watch this, worthy of the days of the Messiah, future, and of the life of the world to come. He brings the salvation of his king. He shows covenant faithfulness to his anointed, to David, and to his seed forever. He makes peace, shalom, in his heavenly places. May he secure shalom, peace for us and for all Israel, and say you, amen. That would be the end, and there's the note of hope in the future for Israel. So you start with this promise at the beginning of, I'm with you in your suffering. And then the cups, I have faithfully brought you through, through a powerful redemption. And at the end, you will be my people and I will be yours, like a husband and a wife. That was the significance of the Seder. So you're supposed to start with, this is the bread of our affliction. Instead, Jesus holds it up and says, this is my body. He's redefining what the Passover meal is all about. Redefining it. What is he saying by that? Oh, hold on to this now, okay? He's saying there's a new exodus. There's a new exodus. That exodus that we talk about from 1,500 years ago in the time of Jesus, 3,500 years ago now, God was faithful then, but that was just a preview. No, no. Starting with this meal, there was a new exodus. And the Passover lamb's about to be given. Redemption will be made available. And that's what he's talking about here. When he redefines these prayers of blessing, he is introducing a new exodus out of our ultimate enemies, sin and death. It's a powerful moment. Now, through the centuries, there have been much debate about what does Jesus mean that this is my body? Much debate. Um, there's three main views on that. Let me just quickly go through this. First one is transubstantiation. Maybe you've heard this. Sorry I had to say that. It's a big, nasty word. So trans, trans, trans is transform. Substantiation, substance, a transforming of the substance. This is the view that says, takes the words literally, this is my body, literal, becomes the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself. This is what Catholics believe. And in so doing, they re-sacrifice Christ every Sunday, which is why they're constantly confessing their sins. It's almost like the animal sacrifices. It's sad. And I love a lot of my Catholic brothers and sisters, okay, but on this one, this is not a biblical view. We don't re-sacrifice Christ over and over again. He was sacrificed once. 
for all time. It doesn't become the actual body and blood any more than when back in the Jewish days when the Jewish patriarch says, this is the bread of affliction back in Egypt. He doesn't mean it's literally becoming the moldy bread from 1,500 years ago. It's not literal. That leaves us two possibilities. Consubstantiation. Con is with. With the substance. Christ is spiritually somehow in, through, above, under the bread and the wine. He is somehow very spiritually involved and part of these elements. That's what Orthodox believers believe. Uh, Mainliners like Episcopalian, Lutheran will go this route. Not all of them, but many of them. And then what we do in most Protestants is the memorial view, that the bread and the wine are symbols. They're symbols that remind us to remember Christ's sacrifice. They're just symbols. They're nothing more than that. Frankly, I lately have been leaning more towards number two. Now, this isn't something you have to agree on. We can disagree on this, and it's okay, all right? But here's why. Because we can't look at this is my body from a 21st century Western perspective. We have to look at it through the eyes of a first century Jew. What would this is my body mean to a first century Jew? Actually, what it'd be is this is my, me, myself, not the physical body. He would be saying everything about me is in this. In other, and, and what was the significance? This, I made a big point of this. What was the significance of the bread of affliction? I am present in your suffering. The bread of Corinthians, Paul says it is our koinonia with one another, sharing in a common life with Christ in the bread. So I'd like to suggest, you don't have to agree with me, that when we take of this and we break it, the breaking is not to signify that Jesus was broken. Actually, he wasn't. None of his bones were broken. Actually, the scripture never says that. King James says that on a questionable manuscript. I won't go into all that. But all the other translations say the body's been given to you, not broken. We break it so we can do what? It's broken, not in the significance of the body's broken, but that's so that we can all have a share. So can you take one? And I want you, I'll leave it up to you guys. You're, you're big people. Pass that around. Everybody take one of these. By the end of the sermon, I want to end with partaking. This bread, and when you have a piece of it, it's a way of saying, his life is my life. It's one loaf. We're one people. We have a koinonia, common life. The bread signifies our commonality in Christ. That's why eating and drinking unworthily of this is when we come and eat of this bread, and yet we're acting in divisive ways with one another. That's what Corinthians teaches. It's about our unity in Christ. We're one body in him. Praise be to Almighty God. Then at that point, it moves to the, he moves and redefines the cup. He takes the cup, and when he'd given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. And he said, this is my blood of the covenant. Does that term sound familiar? Blood of the covenant. Where did we hear that? That Exodus passage the old, that ratified the old covenant, right? This is my blood of the covenant. He's instituting a new covenant which is poured out for many, and, and for many there means basically everyone, the world. And Matthew adds, for the forgiveness of sins. It's poured out for the forgiveness of sins. It's poured out his blood. This is the third cup. I think Jesus is saying this while holding up the third cup. 
This cup that was for the lambs that would be put as a substitute for the firstborn to save lives and escape the, the grip of death. No, now it's my blood. And it's one person's perfect Lamb of God shed for the sins of everyone. But not only that, also to enact and seal the covenant. The new covenant, which is what? That you will be my people and I will be yours. See, it's more than just a forgiveness of sins, as great as that is, and I don't want to anyway diminish that. Because we need that before a holy God. But he's going for more than just you're legally forgiven. Go on and have your life. He's calling you to join your life to his. This cup is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. And they would immediately know what he was referring to. The new covenant was mentioned in the prophet Isaiah, of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 31. Take, now this is a little long. Follow with me. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. And it won't be like the covenant I made before with Moses in the desert. It won't be like that old covenant I made with the ancestors when I took them. Now watch this. By the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. What's he saying? He had to practically drag Israel to be with him. He was faithful to the covenant. They weren't, but that's the kind of husband he is. He sticks to his word. And he takes his bride and he takes her out of Egypt. But she's unfaithful. You know, you think about the book of Hosea, if you're familiar with that, and this is the picture. But I want you to notice, the point of the covenant was not just forgive your sin, but be in relationship with me. The intimate, the point of the covenant was that you would be my bride, I would be your husband. It's a sealing of a relationship, like a marriage, sacred marriage covenant. But they weren't able to do it. Jeremiah goes on now to talk about this new covenant. Watch how he describes it. Now, this is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law on their minds and write it on their hearts. It's not going to be hard anymore. I will be their God. They will be my people, that fourth cup. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to anyone, know the Lord. And remember, the word for knowing the Hebrew is more than head knowledge. It actually was the same word for intercourse. So we're talking about deep, intimate knowledge here. They won't have to say, know the Lord, because they're going to all know me, all of them, all my people, from the least to the greatest, for I will forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. They will be mine. And it's going to be one where it's a two-way, and we want to be with him. How is that going to happen? Later on in Ezekiel 37, he says how he's going to send the Holy Spirit of God to live within us. And Romans 8 describes that when that Spirit lives in you and you live by the Spirit, you now obey the law. You can't help but obey the law when you're walking by the Spirit. The Spirit always obeys the law. You don't have to do it in your own will any longer like in the Old Testament. It's amazing. It's amazing. This is what Jesus is instituting right here. This new covenant is now yours. If you say yes to me, I will set my Spirit in you and fill you. And you will have a new heart. You will want me. And I will be your Lord, yes, I'll be your Savior, but better than all that, I will be your husband. And he wants nothing less than that. That's what any good marriage wants, full intimacy. And that's what Jesus offers here. He is making himself so vulnerable. 
And it's not just human beings, guys. He loves all his creation. Look what Colossians 1 says about the blood of Christ. For God was pleased to have all his fullness, the fullness of God, dwell in him, Jesus. And through Jesus, he now becomes the channel to reconcile to himself all things, not just people, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood, shalom, wholeness, shed on the cross. The blood of Christ is incredible. And what the power of it. Do you know Christ? Do you know Christ? Do you know him? If you don't, I, I, I beg of you. He's inviting you to just say, I want you, Lord. You don't even have to understand all the theology. Just know he died on the cross for your sin and you needed that forgiven. Trust him. But he needs you to say yes to him. Lord, I commit my life to you. And that's actually seen in the last, last verse here. Verse 25. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink anew in the kingdom of God. Now just think about what he just said. I won't drink again of the fruit of the vine. If I'm right, and he was drinking on the third cup, what does that mean? Anybody? I won't drink again. He just drank the third cup. What does that mean? He hasn't drunk the fourth cup yet. Now, I'm just be honest with you. This is my, this is just an opinion here. This isn't like biblical doctrine. I don't think he drank the fourth cup that night. Exactly. He's going to drink it when he returns. Because the book of Revelation talks about, and actually it's funny because today's reading in the 21 days is the same chapter, Revelation 19, that talks about the wedding feast of the Lamb. And it says that when he returns, there's going to be a massive wedding feast. And everyone who loves him and have committed to him are going to be his bride at that feast. And I think it's then he will drink that fourth cup that says, I will be your God and you will be my people forever. Sins and death are gone, done, never again to separate us. And he is looking forward to that day. There's nothing he wants more than that day. Now, by the way, one thing I didn't mention is he, he said they shared the cup. And we think about sharing the cup and we're like, ooh, Right? Not then. They would immediately remember a very important cultural fact from that day. When a young man in the Jewish culture was uh, betrothed to a young woman, they would have dinner with their fathers. Some point in the night, the young man would take the cup, and he would say, this cup symbolizes my life. And he would then hand it to the young one maiden. And if the man drank it from the same cup, she was saying, I join my life to yours. It was a betrothal. And now you're waiting for the... Then he would get up and say, I'm now going to go away and prepare a place for us. And when my father says the time's right, I'll come back to get you and you'll be with me forever. Jesus is asking the disciples to marry him in that room. He's asking us to marry him. He's our husband, guys. That's how he... He doesn't want you just to be some slave that follows him because you have to. He is the lover of your soul. And he is the fullness of life. But you got to say yes to him. Three points I want to make out of all this, just to close here. Number one, I'm amazed at how Jesus trusts and follows his Father's plan, even when it means pain and suffering for him. That shows his love for the Father and his love for us. And we should do no less. Obedience is the... Oh, did that get stuck? Does everyone got one? Oh, no. Well, let's get it going. 
Number two, Jesus unconditionally loves even the worst among us. Even the worst, like Judas, is loved by God. And then number three, Jesus invites all of us to participate in his life now and forever. That's the significance of this bread. This bread is a way of saying, Lord, I join my life to yours. My life is yours. You are my life. Colossians 3, Christ who is your life. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things, because you died and your life is now hidden with Christ, who's in God. That's your life. Own it. Know it. So by now, I was hoping we'd all have this and we could close. But we don't. So just keep working it. What we will do is this. I'd like you all to stand. And I'd like us to obey, to do what they did in the last verse. Verse 26 says, when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Next week, we're going to go to the Mount of Olives, and it's going to be painful. But they sang a hymn before they left. Now, the Jews, whenever they had the Passover meal, they sang Psalm 113 and 114 at the beginning of the meal. And at the end of the meal, they sang Psalms 115, 16, 17, and 118. And they, would, and they would worship the Lord in that way. And so I would like to do the same right now. So why don't we sing first, then we'll eat this. This is a very familiar old hymn. And really pay attention to these words. Sing them from your heart if you're committed to Christ. Let's sing together as we close. Uh, I thought it, yeah. And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Thank you, Lord. Lord, we thank you. Amazing love. How can it be? How can it be that you would die for a Judas like me? God, thank you for your grace. And Lord, as we partake of this bread, first of all, if you have not committed your life to Christ, don't eat this bread and, and be more concerned about God than the people around you. God says you eat judgment to yourself if you've not committed your life to him. You partake in this if you've come to a place where you have committed your life to Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior, and your husband. For those of us who have, this bread signifies the fact that we are one with Christ. All of us. May we keep the feast by loving one another as he has loved us. Thank you, Lord, for giving your life for us. Thank you for the life we have in you. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may eat and leave in peace.